it might help if I turn my mic on. All right, thank you, Katie. That was great. Um, so glad that you could be with us uh, today and look forward to you coming in again for a visit. Did you notice I'm closer to you? Yeah, yeah, uh, I did too. It feels a little weird. Um, will you turn to Philippians for our scripture reading? I'll tell you a story while we turn there. Uh, about 12 years ago, I was an interim for a summer at a very small church. Um, you know, when I say very small, we had like 25 on Sunday mornings. And it was a Baptist church, like a lot of uh, Baptist churches, they sat in the back. It wasn't nearly as large as this, but they all gravitated in the back. So what we ended up doing was moving the, the podium to halfway in the middle of the sanctuary because they refused to come forward. So we got right on top of each other. Um, I was reminded of that as I stepped up here this morning. It feels like I'm a little closer. So um, an interesting feeling to, to not be so far away, but hopefully it'll be good. Well, we're in Philippians, and we're in Philippians chapter 1, and we'll pick up in verse 3 this morning. So Philippians chapter 1, and we'll just begin in verse 3. I'll read this before we get started. Uh, that way we'll have a sense of the passage. This is Paul writing, of course, and in verse 3 of Philippians chapter 1, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that you would apply your word to our hearts and minds, that you would challenge us and change us by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we pray that you would move in our congregation, not just in our individual hearts, but in our collective heart, that you would change how we think about the church this morning, that you would be pleased to encourage us to press into Christian relationships, to commune with you so that our communion with each other would be even more nourishing. And I pray that you would be pleased to bless your word to our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. On October 16th, 1555, two men, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, were tied to the stake in England, and they were martyred uh, by being burnt at the stake. And they were martyred due to their opposition to certain doctrines within the Roman Catholic Church of the time. And as the story goes, moments before the fires were lit, 
Latimer looked over to Ridley, who was tied next to him, and encouraged him with these words. He said, play the man, Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. We have this remarkable show of Christians encouraging each other in the midst of their own deaths. A Christian looking over while they're tied to the stake and saying, stay strong in this moment. It's this incredible show of Christian encouragement and friendship and what Christian relationships can look like. In our text this morning, we get a glimpse into Paul's own heart for this church that he cares deeply about. We see this remarkable affection for the Philippian believers. And we may ask the question, where does this affection come from? Why does he feel so strongly about them? And we'll see that in the text, but, but I just have a simple idea for us, and that's this. Christian relationships are forged in gospel partnership. Christian relationships are forged in gospel partnership. It is the shared struggle for the sake of the gospel that produces deep relationships. And it's our text this morning that gives us insight into what those relationships can be like and where they come from and how they're founded on that gospel partnership. So let's jump right into it, beginning with verses 3 and 4, where Paul once again says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy. Notice the gratitude here. I thank my God, every time you come to my mind, every time he remembers the believers in Philippi, his heart swells in gratitude. This gratitude, he says, prompts prayer because he's so thankful to the Lord and for the relationship he has with the Philippian believers, he prays for them. And that prayer is not a drudgery or a task to check off his daily to-do list. It is a joyful task. So it's gratitude leading to prayer that leads to this incredible joy in Paul's life. Now let's just stop here and think for a second, assess our own lives and think about where we are. Can you name any Christian relationship that causes so much gratitude in your life? Can you name any Christian relationship that causes this level of gratitude in your heart, that pushes you to pray with joy, that causes you to rejoice and exult in what God has done? We live in such an individualistic society that I expect this language of affection seems really foreign to us. And if I can tap into some stereotypes, it's probably even more foreign to the men in this room than it is to the women in this room. And yet I would say probably both of us, men and women alike, find these relationships very difficult. I was on a retreat, as many of you know, a ministry retreat about a month ago camping in the mountains of North Carolina, and the whole topic was friendship. So it was a group of guys that don't really know each other, and we're talking about this idea of what it means to be Christian friends. And it's fascinating as we went around this circle sharing about our satisfaction with friendship, just how few of us were satisfied with the relationships in our lives. 
It's not to say that we don't have good ones. Everyone there had good relationships with their, their spouse and their children if they had children. And everyone seemed to have decent relationships with some people. But many people in the group on a scale of 1 to 10 said that their relationships or in their life were largely unsatisfying. That they didn't have the deep connections they longed and craved. They didn't have it. I suspect few of us then in this room would say that we have friendships that prompt deep gratitude. And then to take that even this step further and say that that gratitude not only gives us gratitude toward the Lord for those friendships, but that gratitude leads to joy and to Christian practice in such a way that, that you're on your knees praying for those people in your life. But this is something that the Lord offers us. This is something that the church is. This is something that, it, it, that is part of the Christian life. And here in our text, we gain some insight into the beauty of all of this. That these relationships are possible for you, even today. You can have these relationships. And they are part of the nourishment for your soul that the Lord wants to give you. So now... Why does Paul feel this way about them? Why does Paul feel this way about them? Look at the answer in verse 5. So we've seen his gratitude, we've seen his joy, but why? Because, all right, that tells us why. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. From the first day until now. Long partnership in the gospel produces gratitude and joy. From the first day until now, the Philippians have been faithful from the beginning and they continue to be faithful. Paul has had years perhaps of a relation with the Philippian believers and that relationship has been refined, it's been forged, it's been strengthened in this gospel partnership. So the whole reason that he can be so thankful and, and grateful, the whole reason that he's so joyful when he thinks about the Philippian believers is because of their partnership in the gospel. And we need to talk about this word partnership, which in some of your Bibles I know is translated fellowship, and that's completely fine. E either way works here. Um, you, may, you may even have something that's synonymous with this, but partnership and fellowship are going to be the primary terms. The original word usually refers to a close relationship, a bond of sharing and unity. In fact, in the ancient world, in the time of Paul, it could even be used for marital relationships. So Paul uses this word throughout the New Testament, by the way. If you read any of his letters, you're almost certainly going to come across this word to speak of the close relationship Christians have with one another and the close relationship we have with Christ, who is not some spirit distant in heaven, but is a living person that we can relate to and commune with. And notice what he says here. Their partnership or fellowship is in the gospel. It's in the gospel from the first day until now. Christian relationships are rooted, founded upon 
the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now we have some concept of what this means because we gather around shared interests all the time. People rally together around things that they're interested in or concerned about all the time. One of the reasons um, CrossFit, the fitness craze, has been so popular is because of the community. It's not just that people really like to work out. It's because what they get in going to a CrossFit gym is the experience of people sharing a struggle with them and encouraging them in that struggle. Relationships are forged in a shared struggle, whether that struggle is in combat or in competition, whether it's in political parties or sports teams. All of these things are shared struggles that forge the relationship, that bond people almost instantaneously. And they deepen that bond the more they spend time in that shared struggle, which is why I use this word forged, because it's under the fires of that struggle that that relationship is strengthened. Now, what we have in the gospel, when Paul talks about partnership in the gospel, is partnership in a cosmic plan. Yes, I said cosmic. See, the gospel is more than just right here. As Paul talks about in Ephesians 6, it's not just flesh and blood. It's not things we can touch and see. But there's all sorts of things happening in the unseen realms. The gospel is God's action, not just to get a few people into heaven. It is God's plan to liberate his good creation from the curses of sin, Satan, and death. Those three things that I talk about all the time because those are the three cosmic or huge enemies that the cross has defeated. And the church, the people of God, you and me, have been brought into that plan. When you read Ephesians, Paul talks about us being seated in the heavenlies with Christ because we're caught up in this struggle, this cosmic battle between powers and principalities and authorities, things we don't see. Again, sin, Satan, and death. There is something huge at work that God is doing. In our world, we probably tend to minimize all of this and make it all very small. We flatten it. Uh, I like the word, we disenchant it, coming from a Catholic philosopher named Charles Taylor. See, it used to be that when Christians and people before the Enlightenment period looked at the world, they saw the world as spiritually charged. And what I mean by that is they felt like there was significance in every area. It's been said of Martin Luther, who was a medieval man, that when he went into the woods, he would have been thinking about the goblins coming out to get him. Now, we don't have to go that far. But certainly what we need to gather again is this notion that there is more at work in our world than just some flesh and blood. There is more at work than what we can see and put hands on. There is something happening in realms that we don't always see, in the spiritual realms, in what the Bible calls the heavenlies. And what we need is this enchanted view of the world, to see that God is at work, to see that there are sinister powers at play even. Now, a relevant application of this partnership idea is how we think about church membership. See, church membership really isn't about meeting our needs. It isn't about voting rights. It's certainly not about power. Church membership is about partnership in the gospel. 
It's about gathering into local communities where the realities of what God has done in Christ and what God is doing in Christ to redeem his creation, where those realities come to bear and we practice a life with a life under those realities. It's about sharing interest and a common goal in the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of the images that I find most helpful when I think about the book of Philippians, and really the New Testament in general, but I think it's especially helpful for the book of Philippians, is the image of an embassy. An embassy. Because what the church is, and what it means to be a Christian, is to sort of be an alien or a sojourner in a foreign country and the church exists something as a heavenly embassy in the world. We'll see more of that at the end of chapter 1 when Paul says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And he uses a word that, that from which we derive our word politics. It's the idea of let your, your way of living in life, let your citizenship be exemplary of the gospel. We see it in chapter 3 when he says, your citizenship is in heaven. So all of that language captures this idea of an embassy. We are aliens in a foreign land representing the kingdom or the reign or the kingship of God. All right, make no mistake about it, the church is political, but our politics are that of the kingdom of God. That, by the way, is one of the reasons, among many reasons, that I am so adamant about the importance of what we're doing right now. This hour of worship that we have each week as a rhythm of our life on the Lord's Day, where we step out of the world and we gather for formation. You don't gather just to hear me talk about some clever things or to hear my opinion about the world. We gather to be formed around the gospel through the Word of God. We step out of the world to practice our citizenship in God's kingdom. We step into an embassy, as it were, not to promote the agendas of earthly empires or political parties, but to promote and practice the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. So when you think about church membership, what I would ask you to do is think in terms of partnership. We are partners, colleagues in the gospel. Now, it's no secret that Southern Baptists have really treated membership over the last several decades um, in an unserious manner. On any given Sunday, this is just a well-known stat, and COVID has only made it worse, so I actually don't know the stat post-COVID. But on any given Sunday in the United States, Southern Baptist churches have one quarter of their membership in attendance. Now, most of you are aware of our membership numbers and our attendance, and you can think through that for yourself. But the point is, I'm not sure how anyone could read the New Testament and come away with the notion that church membership should be so lax and, you know, unimportant. I'm not sure how anyone could come away from reading the New Testament and be at peace with the simple statistic that only a quarter of our membership is with us and yet they're somehow members. Because the point of the New Testament is this, church is not joining a social club. 
I think one of the mistakes that happened culturally was the church did become something as a social club. It was a community you could get involved in, and you were kind of a suspicious individual if you weren't involved in the church. Like, what was wrong with you if you wanted to stay home on Sundays? Are you hiding something? Are you, are you a, a, an enemy of the state? All of these things. But we missed the point in emphasizing those things because church membership is about partnership in the gospel. And I've been pushing us to rethink this for months now. Right? I've been pushing us to think about our membership more closely. The deacons know this. The Constitution Bylaws Committee knows this. People who have heard me teach know this. If you've been paying attention while I'm preaching, you've heard this. Membership is serious. And it comes out of my own heart. I'll tell you more about that in a minute. But I want to show you here how that membership or partnership points to a hopeful future. Look at verse 6. Look at Paul's confidence, which is a key word that runs throughout the book. He, he constantly talks about how confident he is. Verse 6, and I am sure of this. I, I'm, I'm convinced of this reality. That he, this is a reference to the Lord, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. See, this is what the gospel does. It produces confidence and here he says, I'm convinced, or I'm sure of this. God is going to complete the work he began in you. And the basis for that confidence is in their life. The basis for that confidence is in their own commitment to the gospel. He's sure that God is at work in them. He's sure that God began a work in them. And he's certain that God will finish what God started. Look at verse 7. He says, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. Why? For you are all partakers with me of grace. By the way, that word partakers is just a combination word of partnership or fellowship. Okay, very similar word, related word. You are all partakers or partners with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. The reason Paul feels such affection for them is because they are partakers of grace. They have remained committed even when the heat has been turned up, even when Paul has been put into jail, which is where he is right now when he writes this letter. And they've remained committed to the gospel, whether it's in the defense of the gospel or the affirmation or confirmation of the gospel. In other words, the pressure hasn't swayed them. They are standing firm. They have remained faithful in the shared struggle. And Paul, by the way, says that it is right for him to feel this way about you and I hold you in my heart. He is bolstered and strengthened even though he's in prison because of their commitment to the gospel. See, Christian partnership and Christian relationships strengthen us for difficult moments. The whole point of these relationships is so that when the storm picks up, you have others to lean on. Just like we see in that story of Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. Moments before their death, they are there to encourage each other. Stay strong. This is going to do something big. For the name of the Lord Jesus. Christian relationships are forged in gospel partnership. Notice this connection in verse 8. For God is my witness. How I yearn or long for you. With the affection of Christ Jesus. 
This is language of deep commitment, deep love. It's a simple but profound verse. Paul's affection, which is literally translated, by the way, uh, in the King James Version as bowels, is kind of the idea. And, and if you think about this, it's, it's the same way we talk about our heart. Like, I love you with all my heart. Well, they used bowels because that's where you have feelings, right? You, you feel deep emotion in your gut. Okay, so, so that's the idea here, but affection's a fine translation. So the idea is that the inner place of his emotions are moved for the Philippians. And he's, these, these um, emotions, this affection is produced by Christ. It's the affection of Jesus Christ, and it's reminiscent of Christ's own affection. When we get to chapter 2, we'll see that when he says, Have this mind in yourselves, which is also yours in Christ, who gave himself for us, right? Who became a servant for us, the affection of Christ. We also know from the rest of the New Testament that Christ loves his church. He gave himself to wash her and cleanse her, we're told. Even the marriage relationship is just a symbol of Christ and the church. And because Christ loves his church, the people of God, Christ's people, ought to love her as well. Paul will explain that in significant detail in chapter 2, and we'll hold off when we get there. Next, we see an example of this love in Paul's prayer. So in verses 9 through 11, he prays, and, and it it answers this question, what does it mean to love others? What does it mean to love others? We have all sorts of ideas about this. And in our culture, we have notions of what it means to love people and, and, and what love actually is. But the problem is often when we talk about love in the church, our concept of love is more informed by our culture, more informed by what um, cultural thinkers on the news or whatever are saying about love and tolerance than it is by Scripture. See, Paul's affection is not an unbridled love that is unconcerned with truth. It's not what the Bible means by love. It's not an anything goes, free for all, you know, just do your thing and I won't mess with you. That is not love in Scripture. In fact, that's probably more akin to hatred and unconcern and apathy. That's clear in his prayer, by the way, that that's not what he means by love. Look at verse 9. He says, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. The main part of his prayer is this continued increase in love. But notice he says that this love should be tempered with knowledge and discernment. You might even substitute the word truth in there just for simplicity's sake. That your love would increase but in conjunction with truth. And what does he mean? As the reality and power of what God has done in Christ sinks into hearts and minds, what happens is it produces new affections, what the New Testament refers to as love. It is a love for God and a love for others, particularly other believers. So Paul is praying that they would have this experiential knowledge of what Christ has done for them. That it wouldn't just be intellectual knowledge. It wouldn't just be, well, I believe Christ died for my sins. But it would sink so deeply into them that they would grasp it with all knowledge and discernment for their lives. That they would have deeper communion with Christ through the gospel. And that deeper life of knowing Christ produces more love. 
And it produces love that is characterized by the gospel. And there's a result to this. Again, it's not an unbridled love that doesn't concern itself with truth. Look at verse 10. In verse 10 he says, so that, so here's the result, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So the New Testament idea of love is deeper communion with Christ and with the church. Love for each other, love for God. That communion fosters wisdom and holiness. Wisdom and holiness is, again, not an unbridled love of, or tolerance that just sort of goes all over the place and doesn't concern itself with holiness. Instead, our intimacy with Christ produces wisdom and holiness. Likewise, our Christian growth is contingent on Christian community. Our growth in wisdom and holiness requires the Christian community, what we call the church. In order for us to learn how to love and practice love and practice knowledge and discernment and approve what is excellent and be blameless together on the day of Christ, we need each other. It's not something we can do alone. A quote attributed to Augustine states this strongly. He said, a man possesses the Holy Spirit to the extent of his love for Christ's church. Now think about that. Your Christian growth is contingent upon your love for Christ's church. I believe that. I think that's absolutely true. I think it's absolutely true that the means of grace that God has given us are, of course, Scripture and prayer, things we can do privately to some, to some um, degree. But one of the most neglected things in the modern church is our community. And I don't just mean showing up and sitting beside people or even having friends. I mean vulnerable community with other believers where they really know what's going on in your heart, what's going on in your life. And this goal of the Christian life is expressed in verse 11 as he concludes this prayer. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Notice once more that this righteousness is derived. It, it's the filling part here where they're filled with the fruit. That, that is someone else doing that. And, and, and it doesn't come from within us. It comes through Jesus Christ. And the aim, the goal, the purpose, as with all of life, is the praise and glory of God. Now, I'll just say these verses, I've mentioned these a couple of times, different verses as we've gone through them. These are verses that are great to pray, verses 9 through 11. If you don't know how to pray for other people, start here. This is a great place to pray. And just pray these words over people in this church. And then you can adapt them as you understand them more and more. But you can, if you're struggling with it, you can simply pray these verses um, over them. Now, I do think there are some important takeaways for us in this passage. First, we need to prioritize gospel relationships. We need to prioritize gospel relationships. And I don't say that because um, relationships with unbelievers or relationships that aren't gospel-centered are problematic. You should have those relationships. Okay, I'm not calling you to sort of come out of the world and not be part of anybody's life, that, that, that would be a problem. You need those relationships. But gospel-centered relationships will enrich your life in a unique way. 
Friends that are desirous to know Jesus and to deepen that communion with him and with his people are going to nourish you. And you need it. If you want to grow in the Christian life, you need to prioritize fellowship and partnership. Not just membership or attendance. You need to prioritize fellowship and partnership. And the way that we do that is by connecting to a local congregation. One of the reasons that I've said we need to rethink our membership is because our membership needs to be taken seriously so that it fosters real partnership, so that there's real encouragement in our membership. And it's not just, well, that person happens to belong to the same church as me. But, but for example, we have a church covenant And we're bound to that covenant according to our bylaws and constitution. And yet we're so lax when it comes to it. We should encourage one another, as Scripture tells us to, to greater strides in holiness, to know the Lord and to press into the Lord. We should be willing to do that. Yes, you can attend church, a church event, from a sofa in your pajamas. But gospel partnership is only possible through personal involvement. Remember, it's a shared struggle. You can't do that in your living room watching somebody on TV that you'll never meet. It's important that that struggle is shared. Second, we need to prioritize participation in gospel community. And we have a number of ways to do that here at Monument Heights. I want to highlight some, just some things we've been doing lately. As you know, we've rolled out this whole formation plan, and it's a huge part of my vision uh, that I've been trying to cast over the last few months, which is the task I've been hired to do, and trying to be faithful to the task I was hired for. And why is it important? Why is this formation plan important? Why have we been so adamant about it? It's important because as you look at a passage like this, and I think we could go to two dozen, three dozen other passages, it's apparent that our calling is to be profoundly shaped, i.e. formed, by the gospel. We are to be profoundly shaped by the gospel. You could argue, and some people have, that the whole letter of Philippians is about being profoundly shaped by the gospel. Some people look at the Christ hymn in Philippians 2 where we're told about Christ becoming incarnate so that he might humble himself and die on a cross. Some people see that as the very center of Philippians and everything else is just an example of what that looks like in life and practice. So that's a possibility. And that's what it means to be shaped and formed by the gospel. That this notion and this idea and this reality of what Christ has done for us. This dismantling of the powers of sin, Satan, and death. That all of that would come to bear on our life in such a way that when we walk out of this building today, our view of the world is radically changed. That we think differently about the people in this room sitting beside us. That we think about our neighbors differently. That we think about what we prioritize differently. That we think about how we parent. All of that is to be shaped by the gospel. And what I'm saying this morning is that our relationships should be shaped and informed by the gospel. Our educational ministries are one way that we do this. Where we shape each other. Where we see that truth of Proverbs Um, coming to bear, iron sharpens iron, where Christians get together and learn from each other by interpreting scripture together, by 
struggling to understand scripture together, by learning theology together, and by simply sharing about life. And so we have all sorts of educational opportunities here at the church. Currently, we have classes that meet on Sunday mornings prior to our worship service. And by the way, I don't think this is primarily an educational time. We teach the Bible, but that's not our primary avenue of getting you equipped with the knowledge of the faith. Okay? This isn't where you'll really get to delve deep into sound doctrine. We have that on Sunday morning. We have a class, a men's class that meets on Monday evening. We have sort of an advanced theological study that, that I'm teaching on Wednesday night. And if you're in there, uh, we, we do some deep, crazy stuff. But it's a lot of fun. We get into the theological weeds and really try to think hard about what it means to know God. What it means to have been saved by Christ. And then we have a class that meets on Friday afternoon. So there's all sorts of chances for you and opportunities for you. And again, the bulk of those meet on Sunday mornings in our Sunday school classes. And we have multiple opportunities. I just came from teaching uh, the New Testament survey class that Wayne and I are doing together. And we went through Mark's gospel in a detailed way this morning. A very small classroom where people could ask questions and we could talk about this. And I think that sharpens us in a way that this moment can't. I'm just simply talking at you for 30 minutes. But when you have that opportunity to sit down and learn, there's something new happening there. So all of those educational opportunities aim to deepen our knowledge of the faith, but they do it in the context of community. Okay, not simply divorced from everybody else. It's not you sitting at home watching YouTube videos to learn about the faith, which is good and important, but it's you learning among other believers. Then second, something new we're working on is directly intended to deepen your gospel friendships. So I asked you that question at the beginning. How many of you would be satisfied with your Christian friendships and relationships? Right now, on the first and third Wednesdays of the month, we have a family small group. Now, just hold off. I know this doesn't apply to everyone. This applies to those with children of any age. Um, This can go all the way up to, you know, um, uh, basically adult children, um, but, but children of all ages that meets here at the church. And what that looks like is the adults, the parents, have an opportunity, or the caregivers, not always parents, but whoever's being the parental figure in this case, they have an opportunity to discuss in a group, a small group setting with Pastor Chris, they discuss um, usually the text that we've preached the preceding Sunday. Not my sermon notes, the text. So, so they're applying it and thinking, what does this mean for my life? And they're talking about that in the context of their own lives, what it means to work and live and parent as a Christian. And that the kids are getting some specific instruction. Young children are getting uh, instructed in the faith, and the, the teenagers are helping do that. And then on the alternative Wednesdays, there's this whole thing that Chris has come up with, and Anne, and I think it's brilliant, is this idea of a one-on-one mentorship where there is focused discipleship for kids to gather and and to learn about what it means to be a disciple of Christ. So all of that is an opportunity. If you're a parent or caregiver for children, you can come to that on the first and third Wednesdays. And then if you've got teenagers and you're interested in that, you can talk to Pastor Chris uh, about that, and he would love to share that with you. 
and on our radar to produce some other groups that aren't just for families and parents. Other groups that will gather for Christian community are in the works. We want to see people meeting in homes. And we don't really care what you're doing so much as that you're just getting together as believers. We want you to eat together and share life together. The purpose of those groups is to sharpen our faith through close and vulnerable relationships with other believers. Look, I, I'm an introvert. I'm as happy with a book as I am with people. Okay? I'm, I'm content by myself. But I learned the hard way, and the Lord had disciplined me in this way, that Christianity cannot be practiced alone. I had to learn that the church is vital, and that with all my theological training and, and all my knowledge of Scripture or whatever, that that still wouldn't allow me to grow and deepen in my faith. The community is indispensable. This doesn't mean you need to turn into an extrovert. That'll never happen with me. I'll probably become more and more introverted to the point where I have signs on my door as an old man that say, stay off my lawn. I might have those already. But what it does mean is your faith cannot be confined to you and Jesus in a closet. It's not enough. Yeah, I can do that all day. I love it. I, I love to get into Scripture and be alone and, and not have a phone ringing and not answering text messages and just have everything set aside. But personal communion, while it is necessary, still requires the addition of other people. Your faith will never grow properly apart from other believers. You don't have to involve yourself in everything. But you do have to make a commitment to real gospel community. You can't run and hide. Now, I remember my first experience with this a couple of years ago. I got involved with a men's ministry. And it was so strange. But we would sit in this group and we would share openly about what was going on in our hearts and what was going on in our lives. Christian men's group. It was the weirdest experience to actually open up and tell people things that I would rather hide from them. To tell them about my doubts and the difficulties and the struggles and all of these things. But I can also tell you that it radically changed how I understand relationships now. And that I saw how those relationships can go so quickly from being surface relationships that are, hey, how are you? Good to see you. To plunging me deeper than I ever thought possible just by opening up and sharing with others. And it's made it possible in all sorts of new ways. So the Lord offers enrichment and nourishment through Christian relationships. These relationships are forged in gospel partnership. Our commitment to these relationships is an expression of our love for the Lord. So if we love the Lord, we'll love the church. A passage such as this one should greatly shape how we think about the church. And I pray it will. You know, I'm not up here to give you motivational talks. Okay, my, my sermons are aimed to bring us into alignment with Scripture. So what I would hope is that some of you might even start thinking about this, because in a congregational church, the power really lies with you. I would hope you would start thinking about this and thinking about what it might mean for Monument Heights to really emphasize what it means to be the church, to take our membership seriously, to take Christian relationship and Christian community seriously, because change is called for. The gospel is always, as Martin Luther said, calling us to repentance. When the Lord called us to repentance, this is Martin Luther's words, first, uh, first point of his 95 theses, was he calls us to repent every single day. 
The great cry of the Reformation was that the Reformed Church is always reforming. The idea is the church ought to always be going back to Scripture and always be changing according to the mandates can look like. And I pray that you would give us the grace to press into these relationships in our lives. I pray that you might be pleased to move among our church, that you would root out those things that hinder relationships, the apathy, the pride, the power grabs, the, the factionalism, the, the the gossip, all of these things that are warned about so much in the New Testament because they are toxic to Christian community. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to be firm and stand and hold the line together where that line needs to be held. I pray that you would increase our love more and more in all knowledge and discernment so that when we face Christ face to face, we would be pure and blameless before him. Lord, I pray that you would be pleased to breathe new life into Monument Heights, that you might call and compel others to join in partnership here, that you might lead us to be a light together here in the city of Richmond. And Lord, I pray for those who may be struggling with doubt or those who may not believe just yet. I ask that you would open their eyes and open their hearts to the truth of the gospel, what you have done for us in Christ. And I pray that they would see that it is the only viable option in a chaotic world. Again, Lord, we ask that you would have your way here at Monument Heights. We pray that you would move among us and that you would do something fresh and new for your glory, for your praise. In the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.